Memories, like olives, are an acquired taste. William and Mary, I give them the Christian names that were indeed theirs, the joint title by which their friends always referred to them, were for some years an interest in my life, and had a hold on my affection. But a time came when, though I had known and liked them too well ever to forget them, I gave them but a few thoughts now and then. How, being dead, could they keep their place in the mind of a young man surrounded with large and constantly renewed consignments of the living? As one grows older, the charm of novelty wears off. One finds that there is no such thing as novelty, or at any rate that one has lost the faculty for perceiving it. One sees every newcomer not as something strange and special, but as a ticketed specimen of this or that very familiar genus. The world has ceased to be remarkable, and one tends to think more and more often of the days when it was so very remarkable indeed. I suppose that had I been thirty years older when first I knew him, William would have seemed to me little worthier of attention than a tuppenny postage stamp seems today. Yet, no, William really had some oddities that would have caught even an oldster's eye. In himself he was commonplace enough, as I, coeval though I was with him, soon saw. But in details of surface he was unusual. In them he happened to be rather ahead of his time. He was a socialist, for example. In 1890 there was only one other socialist in Oxford, and he, not at all an undergraduate, but a retired chimney-sweep named Hines, who made speeches to which nobody except perhaps William listened near the Martyr's Memorial. And William wore a flannel shirt, and rode a bicycle, very strange habits in those days, and very horrible. He was said to be, though he was short-sighted and wore glasses, a first-rate back at football. But as football was a thing frowned on by the rowing men and coldly ignored by the bloods, his talent for it did not help him. He was one of the principal pariahs of our college, and it was rather in a spirit of bravado and to show how sure of myself I was that I began in my second year to cultivate his acquaintance. We had little in common— I could not think political economy the most exciting thing in the world, as he used to call it. Nor could I without yawning listen to more than a few lines of Mr. William Morris' interminable smooth Icelandic sagas, which my friend, pious young socialist that he was, thought glorious. He had begun to write an Icelandic saga himself, and had already achieved some hundreds of verses— None of these pleased him, though to me they seemed very like his master's. I can see him now, standing on his hearth-rug, holding his manuscript close to his short-sighted eyes, declaiming the verses, and trying, with many angular gestures of his left hand, to animate them. A tall, broad, raw-boned fellow, with long brown hair flung back from his forehead, and a very shabby suit of clothes. Because of his clothes and his socialism, and his habit of offering beer to a guest, I had at first supposed him quite poor, and I was surprised when he told me that he had from his guardian, his parents being dead, an allowance of three hundred and fifty pounds, 
and that when he came of age he would have an income of four hundred pounds. All out of dividends, he would groan. I would hint that Mr. Hines and similar zealots might disembarrass him of this load if he asked them nicely. No, he would say quite seriously, I can't do that, and would read out passages from Fabian essays to show that in the present anarchical conditions only mischief could result from sporadic dispersal of rent. Ten, twelve years hence, he would muse more hopefully. But by that time, I would say, you'll probably be married, and your wife mightn't quite, whereat he would hotly repeat what he had said many times, that he would never marry. Marriage was an antisocial anachronism.